Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 94, Epic Monsters. Recorded Thursday, September 8th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Really wishing fall would get here, kind of sick of summer at this point. Uh, it's kind of feeling late summer, maybe a little bit early fall down here. It's not always in the 90s. It's been very hot and humid up here, and working in a large enclosed cement box doesn't help. Uh, I have stories about construction next door, believe me, but... Oh, and I've seen some of the pictures. That's a lot of yeah. sand. That was a lot of sand that got through the wall where they were sandblasting next door. Your office has become a very gritty setting. It's really nasty, yes. I see what you did there. Har har. <laughs> One of the two company owners, it's a husband and wife duo, had to move everything out of her office to clean it. <sighs> Yeah, it was nasty. But that aside, I'm actually doing pretty well. Been going to the gym, trying to eat a little better, feeling a little better as a result of that. And best of all, last night I got to play in a Pugmire game. Oh, yeah? Yes. Oh, that was fantastic. Because it was with my original gaming group that is all of uh, my wife's and I's closest friends. This is the uh, Birthright group? or Yeah, the Birthright group. But it's, it's really all of her college friends who I kind of got in with right as they were all leaving college. Okay. But these were really the first people that I seriously gamed with. So, good meat space friends. And while we're not local enough anymore to sit down around the same table, I had a lot of fun on a Google Hangout playing with these people and doing two and a half hours of Pugmire. It was great. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know what Pugmire is, it was a game that was kickstarted recently. You can think of it as D&D 5th Edition with uplifted cats and dogs, mostly dogs, as your main characters. Remember you talking about this on a previous episode, at least briefly. Yeah, well, I think I'd said I was going to be in this game. But we we did it, and it went really well. We had a lot of fun. Six players, plus the GM, and a seventh wow. player was absent. That's a full so, table. It's a full table, however virtual. It helps that two pairs are couples and are in the same place. So that kind of helps keep the noise down a little bit, but... It was a, a full crowd, but it kind of worked out because we ended up pairing off to investigate. So it was like, okay, two people go here, two people go here, two people go here. And we got to split the party without splitting the party six different ways. I'll bet you're glad you got that headphone splitter recently. Yes. Well, you're glad too, because we're all glad. Extremely. Really. <laughs> I'm probably at least as glad as you are, frankly, because now I can hear you and your wife when we game. It's really nice that my wife is not in another room while we game in the same house. Yeah, on her phone. <laughs> on her phone, because we just have the one PC. Yeah, that was awkward. But <laughs> it wasn't so much awkward as just plagued by constant audio issues. Well, awkward as well, because I don't, I don't like, you know, having my wife, like, at the other end of the house when we're doing something together. That seems silly. Yeah, that, that is a little odd. Yeah. But anyway, Pugmire was a lot of fun. I'll probably be talking about it more as we go. We're doing it every two weeks. We covered a lot of ground. We had a lot of fun. I think in the, the post-game conversation, it was interesting. We all talked about stretching our gaming legs in different ways. Like, we were all trying to do different things in this game oh, that cool. we hadn't done before. And this is the first time we have gamed—I have gamed with them in 
a while. Because when the Birthright game ended, we didn't really do anything after that. And so, while they have been gaming together without me, because... Some of them live closer together than you do? Well, and some of them are childless, and some of them just don't have other hobbies. Eh, that's all fair. And they don't have jobs that are quite as demanding in some ways. While they have been gaming together, I have not gamed with them for a while, and so it's nice to come back in there and then be like, Oh, hey, you guys are all a little more mature as gamers than we were last time. That's always kind of cool. Yeah, it's neat. Like, we're all doing different things. We're doing a good job, I think, of sharing the spotlight among each other and making room for each other and saying, all right, I'm going to go do a thing. Hey, so-and-so, you want to come with me? Rather than trying to hog the spotlight and be the awesome person. Yeah, that's definitely a sign of uh, increased gamer maturity. Oh, yeah. When you're grabbing people and trying to pull them into scenes with you, that's that's definitely a good sign. Exactly. Oh, and we uh, badgered the GM into agreeing that the villain was, in fact, Cat Necromancers, regardless of what he actually said it was in the, in the <laughs> plot. So that was fun. Anyway, we should move on. We do have a Patreon question to go over, a save against fear to plug, scripture to read, and epic monsters to talk about. So... Yeah, we should probably get a move on here. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash savingthegame. And one of the rewards on there is that you get to ask us a question. Not just once, but you have a question on our list of questions, and we roll a die, which I have here in my hand, using a d12 today, just for fun. And we'll see what comes up. All right. 12. All right, so that's the last one on the list, uh, which is the one we just got. So we're reading another question from Jim Nanban. All right. Uh, the short version of his question is, what is your elevator pitch for tabletop RPGs? And he gives us some context for this one. This comes in part from dealing with my sister, who had asked my brother, my nephew, and I, what's up with you guys in that D&D game? Like, who wins? And sure, we can say, oh, we all win, but that's the kind of smug that gets people slapped or just gets you laughed off and alienates the asker. And I think that's true. The idea of an elevator pitch. Peter, do you know what an elevator pitch is? I do. It's a, it's a very short case for something that can be made while you're riding an elevator, basically. Yeah, the idea is, I think it comes kind of from the show business world or like the, just kind of the business world in general. The idea is you, uh, you have an idea, you get on an elevator with somebody, a decision maker who you want to present that idea to, and you have your elevator pitch it's just long enough for an elevator ride to wherever you're going. And the idea is that you have sold them on this idea by the time they reach their stop. Well, I think we have a, a very important advantage today that maybe we haven't had for the entirety of tabletop RPGs existence. Yeah. And that advantage is the popularity of video games. Pretty much everybody knows what they are and how they work these days. So I would say uh, one of the best ways of pitching tabletop RPGs is they are very much like an imagined co-op experience. Okay, I like that. Mine works a little differently. My elevator pitch is it starts with collaborative storytelling. It's the idea that unlike almost every other form of storytelling, we sit down together and tell a story together by taking on certain roles of characters in that story and making things happen in the game because it's not just actors playing characters with scripted roles but we are improving what they do 
and deciding what happens on the fly. And as a result of that, the story develops from all of us making decisions about how it's going to go together. Sometimes it's my character does this, which is, again, unscripted, and so everybody has to roll with that. Or it's the guy who runs kind of everything else saying, all right, well, as a result of your actions, I'm going to have this happen. And then there's a reaction from the rest of the players and then a reaction from the game master and so on and so forth. And we have rules because while it's easy to say, oh, we're playing pretend and anything is possible, the rules help us define what really is possible according to the setting that we have created, right? A good storytelling world has to be consistent. The rules provide consistency and they decide those moments of they adjudicate conflict. They adjudicate conflict. Do you remember playing pretend, you know, playing soldiers or something in the backyard or, you know, superheroes or what have you, and you going, pew, pew, I shot you, and the other guy saying, no, you didn't, you missed. Uh-huh, no, I hit you. Uh-huh, I have a force field. Well, if we can make it up as we go, all of those are possibilities and there's no progress because we're now stuck on arguing this one point. The rules say, did you succeed or fail? Yes, no. All right, that's decided. Let's move on. The one problem that I have with the playground game analogy is that RPGs, like I alluded to in my very short pitches, tabletop RPGs is a collaborative experience for the most part. There are some like Fiasco where the, the players start out pointed at each other, but by and large, in your average tabletop RPG, all of the player characters will be on the same side. Right, and you'll note mine's a little bit long-winded. I'm not sure I have a great elevator pitch other than saying, well, it's collaborative storytelling and going down that route. Yeah, generally speaking, if you've trot something like that out and somebody asks you for more information, that's when it's fine to start digging in. If they, The real question I think that you want to ask when you get asked this question is, does the person that is asking me this actually care about the answer or do they are they just confused? Right. Because those are those are two entirely different conversations. If they're just confused, you can just be like, okay, well, here's kind of what happens. That's it. If they sound like they might be interested, then it's probably worth your while to take some time and explain in a little more depth to them. If they sound concerned, that is still another conversation. So the context matters. It does. I think if they sound concerned, the concerned person is still interested. They just... It's just a negative interest. Yeah. Well, they have a negative assumption going in. Yeah. I think explaining what they are in the same way alleviates a lot of those concerns because it's, oh, it's not, well, let's sit down and, I don't know, adhere to 80s satanic panic stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim, thanks for asking. Uh, I hope that at least alleviates your curiosity, if not exactly helps. This is what we get for not preparing for our questions ahead of time, right? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. But anyway, Jim, there you go. Thanks for asking. Send us another question, would you? I know we occasionally get messages from Jim saying, all right, time to not think of a question for a week so that I'll eventually get one. I hear you. I've been working on issues for a week, and I have to sometimes just go do something else and hope an answer appears eventually. <laughs> Let the old subconscious chew away at it, huh? Exactly. One thing we want to plug before we move on, Save Against Fear. This is the Bodhana Group's big annual fundraiser and is an awesome gaming convention, and everybody should go. We should go. We just can't get there very yeah. easily. Unfortunately, I have a new job, and therefore I have no vacation time. Right, and I have 
vacation time, but two small children. Eventually, we will make it there. We promise. Jack, Jared, Jen, all the rest of you, we promise. Yeah, we would really like to meet you in person, for one thing. Uh, Save Against Fear is October 14th to 16th of 2016, so not too far away, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which hopefully is not too far away from you. Look it up. You can find it at saveagainstfear.com or thebodhanagroup.org. I mentioned that this was a fundraiser for the Badana Group. The Badana Group, it's a group that we have fundraised for in the past. We did an interview episode with them, uh, episode 25, and they are a group that uses tabletop role-playing games as therapeutic tools for abused children, for children who are themselves abusers, and are working on a manual for just using it as a therapeutic tool in general, which is very cool. Exactly. They're also partners of ours in the Game to Grow project, which is something else we ought to plug. But Really, it's more accurate to say we're partners of theirs. They started this, we're just participating. Very true. Them, Wheelhouse Workshop, Sarah Lynn Bowman, all the rest. And we're just sort of on there going, huh, we are surrounded by smart people. What do we do? Fortunately, all the smart people are nice. Which is a big help. Yeah. At any rate, visit saveagainstfear.com. Uh, check out the Badana Group and Save Against Fear 2016. I assure you, you will have a fantastic time if you are at all into tabletop role-playing games or board games. They have you covered. Yeah. And all of your uh, money there goes to support an amazing gaming cause. All right. Peter, you want to start us off with scripture? Sure. Uh, this is Job 3.8. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Revelation 13, first verse. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. So we are talking tonight about epic monsters, specifically non-human monsters. Uh, We're not talking about human antagonists. We're talking about the big nasty monsters that typically make up the final boss, as it were, of a campaign. Of or at, at least, least an arc. Yeah. Uh, certainly, they are the big, important creatures in games. Generally, we're going to be talking about this from a fantasy perspective, but let's not say that it is only fantasy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there were certainly these in the Mass Effect trilogy... These appear in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which tend to be a bit more science fiction-y. Oh, yeah. This is not unique to fantasy. No, I mean, gothic horror has its epic monsters. Dracula is your classic epic monster, and he is not... Well, it is a... Dracula is a fantasy creature, but we're not talking about Tolkien-esque mythic fantasy. We're talking about gothic horror fantasy. It bears mentioning that uh, Dracula is an epic monster... Not just Strahd from Ravenloft. You know, the, the powerful vampire can, can be a, a monster even in a setting that is ostensibly the real world. Precisely. But of course, we're talking also about things like dragons and Godzilla and the Tarrasque and the gentleman with the thistle-down hair and... The Kraken and the Midgard Serpent and the Eldrazi Titans and Magic the Gathering and... All sorts of things. If it's a monster you can name and talk about with other people... It's probably an epic monster. Yeah, if it's a singular monster anyways. Right. Well, even classes we can generally talk about. But usually when we're talking about an epic monster, 
it is a primary antagonist of the story, or it is just a little bit subject to the primary antagonist, or is kind of the, the secret master of your primary antagonist. Your primary antagonist might be a Cthulhu cultist who's very powerful, but behind them is this epic monster who you have some sort of conflict with. Yeah. Or alternatively, this might be, you know, some great beast that is, for some reason, subject to an evil wizard. Yeah, you'll you'll get those a lot of the time with, um, in fantasy games, you'll see like a wizard that has like a dragon that they ride and is kind of mind controlled or subject to their whim or something like that. Right. You know, the classic, oh, I've got this creature bound and it hates being bound, but it, it serves me because it must. Insert your typical classic villain monologue in whatever lair he's got. Yeah. But many of these are, of course, villains all on their own. Dracula is subject to no one. A dragon is usually subject to no one and nobody, because they're large and powerful and typically pretty magical. And often fairly intelligent, although not always. Although not always. Epic monsters are usually symbolic. Much more than your garden variety monster, they tend to represent something important. And this is more or less true depending on the source material? Well, the source material. If you're talking about a D&D dragon, well, there are dragons, and sure, they represent, I don't know, greed or something, but it's kind of... It depends on the specific legend, really. Well, it, it's legend at several removes and turned into a big dangerous monster. But Typically, these will be something like a fear of the unknown, a fear of chaos, a fear of what sleeps beneath the ocean, a fear of undeath, of what awaits beyond the grave. All of these classic fears or something symbolic like, you know, the might of nature. Typically, an epic monster will have some essence that A is a story hook, which is really important, but is also somewhat thematic. One of the... Uh best sources for ideas on themes and underlying fears represented by these epic monsters is if you go back to our episode where we talked with Kenneth Height, uh, he wrote a book called GURPS Horror a little while ago, and that is a very good reference for if you want to get at kind of the psychological underpinnings of a lot of these creatures, what specific fear is represented by what specific type of monster, and that can be a very good piece of source material. Because sometimes um, the same creature will have multiple or different fears that it represents. You may not even have to make that a central point of your game, but if you kind of familiarize yourself with some of the, these underlying themes, I think you'll get a richer experience out of using it. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that an epic monster does not necessarily have to be of epic scope and scale. It can be epic just within the story you are telling. Yeah, and I originally thought that this this was something that had to be basically the campaign villain. And you pushed back on this a little bit when we were outlining. And the one example that you gave that's come up in our campaign is there's a wyvern on the island and we're only second level. Yeah, and guess what? That wyvern will mess you up if you try and fight it. Uh-huh. Your job right now is avoid that wyvern. Maybe distract the wyvern. Maybe drive off the wyvern. It is not fight and beat the wyvern. Yeah, it is make sure the wyvern is somewhere that we are not. Right. And that does not mean that you cannot interact with the wyvern. Maybe you draw the wyvern's attention to something else you don't like. 
Maybe you slip into its lair while it's out and, I don't know, hunt for wyvern eggs or look for any treasure that might be left in the cave that it lives in. Whatever. You know, you can interact with it. You can certainly say, oh, guys, the wyvern is coming. Everybody run and hide. And everybody survives a wyvern attack. You could maybe even interact with it indirectly by talking to other people who have had to deal with the wyvern. So... Just because in a few more levels you will have no problem taking on a wyvern doesn't mean that right now that wyvern is not an epic monster for you to have a showdown with. When that showdown comes, it will be amazing. In fact, I'm really hoping that it will be amazing because I will do my best. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting, especially given some of the features of the island and stuff, to see what form that battle takes. I'm, I'm looking forward to that too, although I sure don't want to rush it. No, no. And to a certain degree, it is not as scary because you know you're going to level up in this game. But right now, it fits that role, right? And as this first arc of the campaign develops, yeah, that's definitely the epic monster who, that we're leading up to having some confrontation with at some point, right? Well, and the Wyvern does something else that's interesting because one of the other things that happened in the last session is that we ran across a group of friendly NPCs, and they are also in no position to take on the Wyvern. So now, in addition to having anxiety about facing the wyvern directly or it coming after the group that we arrived with, now it's like, oh, there's these other people on the island that we're kind of concerned for the safety of, and I don't want the wyvern messing them up either. Right, and they are proof that you can't just easily deal with a wyvern. No. Because they have been forced to live basically by hiding, making sure the wyvern doesn't come and try and pick one of them up out of the trees or whatever. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. Thankfully, I think Kinku are not good eating compared to, I don't know, overgrown capybara or whatever lives on these <laughs> islands. But Yeah, they seem like they'd be kind of stringy. Yeah, but I'm sure one or two have uh, had at least one flight right at the end of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it works well, but the scale is relatively small, right? We're not talking about Cthulhu. No, we're not even talking about um, Smaug. Really? I yeah. mean, this dragon is not even really a dragon. A wyvern is basically a big, dumb flying beast with a poisonous stinger. It's, yeah. It's much closer to like... It, it's like a uh, eagle with a poisonous tail. Yeah. But anyway, we're, we're focusing a lot on this wyvern. The point is that in this current arc, it's really important. Later on, even though it's the same game, you'll have a cool wyvern story. Yeah. Typically, an epic monster is a primary antagonist... And as such, they are usually pretty powerful. Now, powerful can have lots of different meanings. A wyvern is difficult to fight, and it's poisonous, and it has all sorts of abilities that make it very difficult to take on in a direct conflict. Yeah, it flies, it's got teeth and claws and a poisonous stinger. Yeah, exactly. There are other epic monsters in this campaign, in fact, that are powerful in very different ways. Yeah, just to use a typical D&D monster for an example, a Beholder is a completely different nature of threat than a Wyvern is. Sure. Or I would say even something like a Rakshasa. Yeah. Well, this is not something that wants to fight you head on. This is something that casts evil spells and invades your dreams and maybe will make a deal with you. You know, there are plenty of things that are happy to talk with you for a while rather than just say, Huh, you look like prey. Smog, again, to use that example, 
Sure, he's a big, powerful dragon, but the first time you meet Smog is Bilbo and Smog having a duel of wits. Yeah. Feeling each other out. Trying to understand what the other one really is. What are the weaknesses that you have? What sort of threat do you represent to me? Yeah. And then on the far end of the spectrum, you have things like, oh, this is probably just in my brain because it's a recent magic set, but Emrakul from the Eldritch Moon storyline, which warps an entire plane and merges creatures together in weird monstrous ways and stuff just by existing. Yes, I mean, that's what Emrakul is. It's ew, flesh merging, ew, gross, ew, body horror. Yeah, body horror madness. Crazy Lovecraftian stuff with the serial numbers not really even filed off. Right, the bismuth from outer space. Yeah. And that's fine. Sometimes these things are so powerful you can't directly conflict with them. Dracula, for example, you can't always fight directly. Although, depending on the Dracula story, maybe you can. Well, to give a to go back to Kenneth Hyde again, he recently won an any award for an entire campaign based around trying to take down Dracula. So, just to give you an idea, that's one of the largest most complex RPG products ever released. And that's all around taking down this one classic gothic monster. So, yeah, sometimes these can be not very, in fact, they should be very non-trivial undertakings. Even when we get to the Wyvern, that's not going to be like fighting the Sahagin at the beginning of the game, where the fighter rips a shark off his leg and, you know, clubs one while the rogue does another one in with a sneak attack. It will be much more interesting, and we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. First, though, I do want to say that while I have said, hey, there are more epic monsters coming, you know, in our own game, I think you need to be careful not to have too many of these running around because they lose that sense of being epic. Yeah, for sure. You want, you want these things to be like maybe one per story arc, and they need to have some greater reason for being, uh, or at the very least they need to have some story critical effect on the game. They don't just, you don't want a huge bag of hit points with weird abilities sitting off in a corner waiting for you to get to it. They should have some effect on the world. That's exactly it. They should have a real tangible effect on the setting. They should be related to some, some drive the player characters have. While I don't think it's necessary to say, well, every major epic monster you have fought throughout the campaign all stems from some villain at the, the very top that we are going to fight to wrap up the whole campaign. The reason that feels good is that it provides a cohesive narrative that ties together everything that has happened in the game. And that cohesive narrative is really required to make this epic monster that you've introduced not feel out of place. It's not that bag of hit points you mentioned. So another thing that you've got in here that's uh, that's interesting is that uh, typically these monsters have some kind of a lair. Now, not always. In particular, some of the um, kind of the weird, unnatural force from someplace else don't. Right. Like the aforementioned Eldrazi Titans, although some of Lovecraft's monsters do. And more to the point, even the Lovecraft monster's home ground has a weird nature that reflects the monster. Yeah, I mean, Rilia is a is definitely a part of Cthulhu's whole shtick. Sure, Rilia is exactly kind of what I'm thinking of. Hey, we found it. Boy, everything here is really strange. Oh, this is why. Yeah. I think a good epic monster does have some sort of lair. 
it may not be a static, fixed dwelling place, but when I say lair, I mean when you go to confront them on their home turf, their home turf reflects the monster in some way. I might be fighting an Eldrazi in the nameless, whatever the beyond, in between the planes Blind is. Blind Eternities. The Blind Eternities, there we go, where these Lovecraftian knockoffs in the Magic the Gathering setting come from. <laughs> Well, I guarantee the Blind Eternities is an interesting place to go fight a monster. Yeah, even if it's just nothing and it's the monster's kind of hanging out there, that in, on its own is weird and trippy and how do you interact? How do you move around? Yeah, although I really hope it's something more like classic Doctor Strange astral space, all 60s trippy. Yeah. That would be great. Anyway. We'll probably find out eventually. <laughs> eventually. But a, a good layer doesn't just provide additional challenge. Like, it's not, oh, well, the monster gets a plus one bonus when they're in their lair. Uh, that helps. It drives up the mechanical tension a little bit. But really, a layer plays up the theme. And it sure. gives the monster a sense of power. This is their home turf. This is where they are most powerful. It's where they're most comfortable. You get to see them in all their terrible glory. The archetypical example of this is like the standard D&D &D Red Dragon's Lair, right? Yeah, well, which is a knockoff of Smog's Lair, but yes. Yeah, exactly. It's probably someplace hot, like a volcano or a steam vent or something like that, or maybe out in, a, in the desert someplace. Certainly a mountain somewhere. Yeah. There's going to be a whole bunch of gold in there, because dragons like to hoard wealth and treasure and that sort of thing. Also a knockoff mm -hmm. of Smog, but you got to acknowledge your source material. A lot of the time, these will be there will be some, kind of a smaller entrance, and then there's a large cavernous open space that allows you to kind of emphasize how big this thing that you're in here with is compared to you, which yep. is kind of neat. Uh, there will sometimes be other smaller threats inside there. Uh, it could be traps or permanent spells that the dragon has left in a lot of D&D &D campaigns, but it could just be its young or like scavengers and symbiotic organisms of some kind that oh, yeah. hang servants. around in there. Yeah. Servants, guards. Uh, a, a visit to a lair does not mean just going to this place. It may mean a whole dungeon crawl to get to it. Yeah, and keep in mind, this can be a castle. We keep going to Dracula. You know, his lair is, is his whole castle as opposed to just a cave someplace. Yeah, Capcom made a whole series of games about trying to find Dracula in a castle. Yes. <laughs> castle is even right there in the name. Hey, look what I did. I actually love Castlevania games because I love Metroidvania-style exploration games. Symphony of the Night is one of my favorite video games of all time. I still regret giving that up with my original-gen PlayStation because it's mm. not like $100 if you want to get a copy. Uh, have you ever seen a speedrun of Symphony of the Night? I have not. Oh, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's so, it's so ridiculously broken. It's wonderful. Anyway. <laughs> I'll have to look that up some point. There are multiple categories of Symphony of the Night because it's such a popular game, and there are different characters you can play by putting names in on the save file. Oh, yeah. Various different categories of glitchless runs, any percent, 100 percent, all bosses, all these different categories because it's so popular. There's different ways to say, I beat it fast. And you wonder why I'm sad that I don't have a copy of this game anymore. <laughs> so, so the point is, the lair is... Not just about the monster, it's kind of their place in the world. But you were you were kind of going, describing a setting. Go ahead. No, I think I was pretty well finished with that Red Dragon's okay. Lair. The, the thing that I wanted to stress with that description is that it's more than just a big empty room with a monster in the center. 
it's it's got its own ecosystem it's got its own traits there is more to describe than just what it smells like because the monster is here and how warm it is yeah i will point out you don't have to just go to the lair to fight the monster there may be all sorts of reasons to go to this lair and encounter the monster before that epic confrontation including that you don't know that this is the lair of a monster in the first place by the way well yeah there's that but let's say it's um a powerful dragon who rules over a certain amount of territory well maybe the first time you go there you're paying tribute yeah maybe the second time you go you're spying the third time you go you're scouting and maybe the fourth time you go now you're ready to take him on Maybe you're visiting Dracula and you go, huh, well, that was a weird visit. Oh, hey, my footman just, you know, tried to bite me and drink my blood. That's real weird. Let's go back there and see what's wrong. My footman has never done this before. This is out of character for him. It, it's unusual behavior, even for a footman, yes. Yeah. Um, dramatically, the reason to have a lair is that a confrontation in that lair gives you a sense that the monster has nowhere left to run and hide. This is their redoubt. And if they can't win here, they can't win anywhere, so you're going to beat them here. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to call out is that 5th edition D&D does this very well, because when they say this is an epic monster, they describe layers, and those layers, A, have mechanical effects when the epic monster is in that layer, but B, they say these are the effects that this monster has on the world around it. And so these are the signs of a layer. It's like, hey, there's rot and decay in a mile in every direction around this particular monster. You know, the ground is hot. There's a lot more lava around where a red dragon lives. Yeah, all sorts of crazy things like that. Uh, and, and Aboleth may always give a sense that you're being watched everywhere around this Aboleth. And everything is slimy and rotting and gross and warped and twisted. They do a really good job with that. And I like that because it gives a sense that the monster, again, has a tangible effect on the world they live in. And that's something else I want to talk about, because monsters don't just have a tangible effect now. They have had an impact on the world in the past. That's why they are an antagonist. They've been doing things that the protagonists need to deal with. And so they have a reputation, and they have history. Yeah, now, how well that history is known, that can vary from campaign to campaign. Right. In some campaigns, the fact that this thing is very well known and has been the scourge of this land for centuries is part of what makes the monster so effective. It's like, oh, you know, we've we've had to do all of these things to appease the dragon. This is horrible. We're kind of under this thing's clawed thumb. But what can you do? It's a dragon and it keeps getting more powerful faster than we're getting born. We just kind of have to put up with it mm -hmm. because the the other option is to get roasted alive and become dragon chow. Right. In other settings, this thing might have a history, but it might be totally unknown to you. At the start. And, yeah, and this is a weird, mysterious entity that you have to go, like, trudging through ancient tombs and looking in lost libraries and stuff to find out what it even is, much less how to deal with it. It's important to note, too, that often what other people know about a monster may be wrong. We've talked before about not always getting correct information from NPCs, because NPCs these are not video game NPCs where they tell you uh, important information to add to your lore database. Yeah, they're not flawless information dispensers. They're people. And so sussing out the truth of the matter is, I think, an important part of researching an epic monster and discovering their history. You know, the origin of an epic monster is always a great thing to get into. You know, where did this 
terrifying minotaur-like demon come from? You know, what spawned it? That sort of thing. You know, that actually reminds me a while ago, uh, back in the 3-5 era. Remember how they used to do those articles where it was like some monster of the week or month or whatever it was on nope. the Watsi website? You don't remember those? No, I, uh, I didn't really pay They used attention. to do those. Well, they had this one where this villain looked very demonic, but it wasn't. It was a minotaur with, I believe, a green dragon bloodline. Mm -hmm. So it had like the horns of a minotaur and it was scaly and winged and everything like that. And it, it looked very demonic. Not even slightly. Just <laughs> dragon and minotaur mixed together. Perfect. Yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting monster with its own unique features, right? Yep. Unusual attributes are actually something really important for a good epic monster. Often, these are tied to what they represent, the motifs of the monster, whatever you're talking about in the story. But sometimes they are just weird things about it that make encountering them unusual. This is a terrifying epic monster. It looks like a demon. It's not really a demon. It's not vulnerable to holy things. But if you, I don't know. Shoot it with an arrow, it'll take the same damage that anything else would? Yeah. You know, one of the cool things about uh, Bilbo Baggins' first encounter with Smog is that Bilbo goes, wow, this is a really heavily armored invincible creature, and I see its vulnerability, which is a little spot around its heart where the scales aren't. That's good to know. You know, the monster has an, uh, an Achilles heel. It's yeah. invulnerable, except for the thing that makes it vulnerable. And that's a different sort of encounter, because normally it's, well, we're just going to, I don't know, shoot it with arrows. Well, now we have to do this dramatic thing of getting everything set up, and making sure that as the dragon approaches, we ha have this one guy firing a particular kind of arrow straight up into it to really do it justice and have, you know, make sure that we have this heroic moment. Yeah, and it can't just be any guy. It's got to be like the legendary elven archer that is in our party who's been, you know, leveling up since forever. And his player character has got him or his player has got him like built as the next Legolas. And this guy can, you know, shoot a, a fly off a fence without taking its wings off or, you know, it's just right. like, or, yeah. you know, let's say it's the wyvern that you guys have. Well, it's not, well, we're going to just stand up to it and swing swords at it and do arithmetic with dice until we see who wins. It's all right, let's make a plan. Let's figure out how to catch this thing and neutralize its advantages and give us advantages because this is an unusual creature and there are conditions we have to meet in order to be able to adequately defeat it. Maybe we have to net it and keep it on the ground. Maybe we have to make sure it can't get to its lair. Maybe we make sure to fight it in its lair where it can't fly. You know, anything like that. Typically, though, simple violence isn't going to win the day because of the unusual attributes of a monster. Yeah, I would actually think for something like the Wyvern, it would, you know, the ideal place to fight it would be if you could figure out some way of luring it into a tight space where it can't use its tail. Right, or the wings as well, right? Yeah. The other unusual attribute I want to talk about and call out specifically, and I, I encourage you to come up with your own, but signs and portents are often really neat unusual attributes to give to a monster. Dagon, in the Innsmouth story that Lovecraft wrote, I forget its name off the top of my head, all of his servant creatures have all these terrible features and, you know, these fishy looks and that sort of thing. I talked about sort of the, the portents that say, hey, there's a kind of monster here. When I was talking about 5th ed D&D layers, well, 
you know, this idea that when an aboleth moves in, certain things start happening, like eyes start growing everywhere because it's watching everything all the time. Or maybe that's what happens with a beholder, right? Because yeah. a beholder is an eye tyrant. The the immediate environment becomes very beholdery. Right. But also, hey, this thing is coming. There are portents that say this thing is coming. What are those? And how can I foreshadow this coming monster? Yeah. You know, those are, are great things to include. They play up the danger of the monster a lot. And I think, frankly, give a sense of accomplishment because we've recognized the signs. We know what these are. We interpret them. Now we understand them. And we know what's coming and how to prepare. Yeah, and I think I think that preparedness and working to... Well, I'm very biased on this account and I admit it. But at least for me, achieving that preparedness, working towards it, coming up with those plans that tends to make for a much more satisfying experience than just Leroy Jenkinsing it. <laughs> I, I hate to say it. For you, I think that's how you win. Coming up with the plan and executing it is often your idea of a of victory, right? That's much oh, yeah. more satisfying for you. Honestly, you could just say, I've got a plan, and then I can, you know, you come up with a plan, and I say, it works exactly as advertised, and that's almost good enough for you. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely the tactician when you start looking at the different types of role player. Yeah. And in fact, I think sometimes I have said, all right, Peter, your plan works exactly as advertised. Yeah, I think there have been a couple of times. <laughs> Probably in Shadowrun, but yeah. You know. <laughs> Sweet. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, because, well, it works. Peter just described what's going to happen. I don't need to repeat it. But that <laughs> works for you. Like, that gets you the satisfaction. There are players who definitely want that big confrontation with an epic monster, but I think... Often, figuring out the puzzle that the epic monster presents is just as important. And, and maybe that's where I want to wrap this up, because I think epic monsters can be a puzzle in their own right. Can and probably should, really. In most cases. You know, it's, okay, what is this thing? What is it really? What is its true nature? What is its history? How do we find information about it? interpret that information how do we get the things we need to solve the problem that this monster represents and how do we apply those things again maybe in some big you know epic showdown i haven't talked about this on air and i'm really hoping to find time to at some point or find a suitable topic we had an, a showdown with an epic fey creature in our mage game well, that epic showdown was an entire session where we all contributed m musical numbers Huh. In fact, I still have a copy of the um, of the playlist that we came up with. I'll have to go into this at some point. I've been wanting to talk about it practically since the the game ended and we started the podcast. And wow, we haven't talked about music ever, so it's never seemed like the right time. But I'll have to find time to talk about it at some point. At the very least, I'm going to have to wring this story out of you off the mics at some point. This sounds <laughs> fascinating. It, it was pretty cool. But anyway, whatever that confrontation is, everything that you've done ahead of time makes it that much more rewarding. And it is it it has a lot of the same features as a good puzzle, a good mystery in a lot of ways. It's just the application and trappings are different. One or two quick notes. There are a couple of pros and cons. You know us. We love talking about pros and cons. A couple of pros and cons of a monster. And I think all of the pros we have talked about. Yeah, I think we've hit on them all as we've been going through. They can they can add a sense of scale and tone to a game. They're potentially an interesting piece of world building all their own. They're obviously a very useful tonal aid. 
and their looming sense of menace can be very focusing. Yeah, exactly. Probably hit all of those. Cons wise, they require that the players accept the GM's premise that they'll eventually be able to do something about the monster. Yeah, when I introduce a wyvern, I am promising you that at some point you will do something about that wyvern. Yeah. Sometimes people don't accept that promise. They don't buy it. And sometimes this is because they have had a bad history of GMs presenting a super monster and saying, nope, it's my super monster. You can't ever defeat it. Yeah. It's 2016, but this still happens, people. Seriously. It shouldn't, but it does. Yeah, I mean, very aggressive groups will feel cheated or annoyed at not being able to confront it directly. Immediately as well. Yeah, now. Um, And more cautious or gun-shy groups, maybe that have had a different kind of bad GM, like the one you described, will sometimes simply seek to get away because that's all they can do about these kinds of things. Right. Uh, at least in their prior experience. You want to avoid either one of those. You want the, the characters to feel more and more like they can and should do something about this as the campaign goes on, but maybe haven't reached that point just yet. And, and when you say get away, I think you're really saying get away and never interact with it again and ignore that because it looks impossible to defeat. Get it away from the story is probably more what some of these groups would do. A couple other quick notes. Obviously, a good epic monster, good meaning meeting all my criteria of a good epic (laughs) monster. I mean, what other criteria could there possibly be for a good epic monster, right? Um, One with a rich history and a complicated plot and a good lair and all these interesting things... That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of world building. It's probably a lot of stat generating. It's a lot of thinking about how the story will work and how how to make this a looming threat and still give the players agency. And unfortunately, if you don't do that work, you fall into the other trap, which is that they can feel cliched. Yeah. Oh, look, another dragon. I'm so scared. It's a flying bag of hit points with magic spells and fire breath. Ooh. Yeah, if you don't put any thought into it and you take the cliched monster, well, it's going to feel cliched for a reason, and everybody is bored, including you. Yeah, perhaps especially you. Yeah. So I want to wrap this up with a very important call to our listeners. Listeners, I want to know what your best epic monster story from your games is. The best epic monster story you had in any campaign or even any one shot whatever the coolest thing that happened was involving some amazing monster that you went round and round with throughout the campaign and worked your way up to or the con game or whatever it was yeah i want to know just how awesome that was and I'm not just mining this for campaign ideas, I promise. I, re- I, like, I really want to know. We have a lot of awesome listeners who have great stories. I want to hear those. So, And I want you all to check the comments on the blog post that hosts the episode, which you can find at stgcast.org. Look there, because people are going to put them there. And check us on Facebook, because people will comment on Facebook and post to our page and post on the episode notification where we usually say, hey, we've got a new episode. And look at Twitter, because I'll be retweeting those from the Saving the Game account, at Saving the Game. And check our Google Plus group, which we haven't talked about much lately, but is still there and active in our Google Plus page. People will be commenting there with epic monster stories that are really awesome. Check all of those places, or any of them. Post your own. We want to know all about them. We're going to share them around, because I know you have some amazing ones. 
Yeah, and this is the sort of thing where if you can get a good one, it will probably get your juices flowing as you're making your next game if you're a GM or give you ideas on, hey, this player group did something really cool when they were going up against it. Maybe our player group can do the same thing or something similar to that. And I'm not entirely kidding about stealing your ideas for my own game. Knowing what other people have done and saying, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to borrow some part of that is a classic GMing move. Well, it's a, it's a venerable storied GMing tradition, and it's uh, got a long, proud history. I mean, yeah, we call that inspiration, for goodness sakes. Exactly. So if you're looking for something to introduce into your game, well, check our show notes, check our comments, check our social media feed. You'll probably find something. And if, if you don't find something, please post your own and help other people find something. That's what yes, I'm saying. Exactly. All right. We do need to wrap this up. Thank you for listening. I want to thank everyone who has supported us on Patreon. You can, if you want to, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game, as we said before. If you are not familiar with our Patreon campaign, head out there. There's a video introducing all the uh, reward tiers. But from both Peter and myself, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless and happy gaming.